Check, check, check. John Bonfather is a great man. Check, 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 check. Thank you, brother. Thank you so much. This just gives me an excuse to take off my jacket for this sermon here. I think the jacket's been causing a little bit of problems with the with the um, sound system, <clears throat> or the speakers at least this morning. Well, open your Bibles, beloved, to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. I'm very excited to begin our new series this morning through the book of Titus. We're going to be in Titus the rest of the year, and uh, we'll take a break here and there. Uh, The biggest break we'll take is at the end of September and through the whole month of October. Uh, I'm going to be doing a five-message series on the solas of the Reformation, and I'm very excited about that as well. I think we need to make a big deal about the Reformation because we are, by the grace of God, recipients of so many of the blessings that were achieved by, um, were, we obtained them because of the brethren that came before us that, um, by the grace of God, fought for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. I think we need to really make a big deal of that. This year is the 500th uh, celebration of the Protestant Reformation. So we'll take a break there, but we'll be in Titus until the end of the year, Lord willing. And I emphasize Lord willing. As you know, I have a tendency to expand our series a little bit here and there. But I do want to be as thorough as we can be as we work through the Word of God. Um, this is a, um, a a series that I really want you to prayerfully before the Lord be asking that God would work in your heart personally and in the life of our church just in a mighty way. Uh, the Word of God can bear great fruit, beloved, when we are reflecting and purposefully and prayerfully thinking through how to apply His Word to our lives. And I pray that we would do that as we work through this great book together. I would ask you that if, uh, we're, as we work, th- work through the book of Titus, make it your goal just to read through the book of Titus once a, once a week. It's three chapters, uh, not a big book. It's one of the smallest books uh, in the Bible. So just read through the, um, through the book of Titus once a week, and that way you're familiar with the, uh, with the overall gist of the book and the content of the book, okay? I've titled the series, The Gospel on Display. The gospel on display, and you can even add there, the gospel on display through the church. That really is the theme of the letter of Titus. And beloved, it's a foundational letter for us to work through as a church. Um, The book of Titus deals with crucial issues and themes, such as the church and the gospel and the grace of God. And even um, helps us to answer the question of how are we in a midst of a wicked, wicked and perverse generation? Um, uh, live in a culture that is anti-God in a way that honors the Lord. I think the book of Titus answers that. How do we live godly lives and have a powerful godly witness in the midst of a lost world? You know, I've been reminded time and time again of the timelessness of the Word of God. That this book, even though written some 2,000 years ago to Titus on the island of Crete, um, for to apply uh, in churches in various cities on the island of Crete is so applicable and pertinent for us today. And I hope that even beginning today, as we look at some introduction, introductory items of this book, that you will see the pertinence of the contents of this letter for our church today in our context that we find ourselves in. So I'm very excited about this series. Like I said, today will be highly uh, introductory material, um, but Lord willing, helpful to you. I think sometimes we can begin to look at the branches and the leaves very closely and lose sight of the big picture. 
And so my purpose today is to really help you to understand the big picture of Titus so that later on we look at each and every branch and leaf, so to speak, an intricate detail of this great letter. Okay? So notice what Paul says in chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is how Paul typically opens up his letters. And this is a kind of a unique opening because verses 1 through 4 are one sentence. This is his biggest introduction uh, of his smaller epistles here in Titus. And we'll see why he gets into such a long introduction. But I want you to do something by way of um, just a, a background and introduction here. I want you to keep a finger in the book of Titus and go to the book of Ephesians with me for a second. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 15 and following, Paul begins to pray for the Ephesian believers that their, their eyes would be opened, that they would have their eyes opened to understanding various spiritual realities. And one of the great spiritual realities is the great power of God. He wants them to understand the great power of God, which was ultimately manifested in, the, in his raising of Jesus, his son, from the dead according to verses 20 and 21, and, and how he, after he raised Jesus from the dead, he, he seated Jesus in the highest place of prominence as the exalted king over the church. Verse 22, And he put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul loves to exalt Christ and to exalt Jesus as the head over the church. And he loves to, to, to um, talk about the majesty and the beauty of Jesus' bride, his church. Time and time again, he loves to speak of the church. And he's speaking of the church here in the book of Ephesians. Then in chapter 2, verse 19, he begins to do it again. He says in 2.19, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. He's been talking about, in the context, Jesus as the great peacemaker who has brought both believing Gentiles and believing Jews into one body, one household at the end of verse 19. Such is the grace of God. Having been built, verse 20, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Paul is exalting Christ and exalting the, the prominent place of the church. And he uses various metaphors there in verses 19 through 22 to point to the church. He calls the church a household at the end of verse 19. He calls the church a building at the, in verse 21. He calls the church a holy temple or holy sanctuary at the end of verse 21. He calls the church a body to emphasize that this is a living, vibrant organism that has members. And we all play an intricate role, an important role in in this body, Paul wants to exalt the bride of Christ and the church. And God, in his infinite 
majesty and grace has allowed Paul to have a role to play in the building of his church. Look at chapter 3 and verse 8. He says, To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Paul's job and duty and role within this great plan of God was to preach to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, of the fact that God was now calling people from every nation, tribe, by faith in Jesus Christ, to be a part of this one church, this living organism. Verse 9, And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things. So that, verse 10, notice, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Paul says, you know what? There's this great plan of God, the administration of this mystery, which God is now unfolding in and through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and building his church full of people, Gentiles and Jews alike, who are putting their faith in Jesus. God is building up his temple, his church, his bride, It's a beautiful thing, and I, a sinner, get a chance to be a part of this wonderful work of God. But ultimately, why is God doing this? What is the purpose, the great grand purpose for God building His church? Notice verse 10. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Why is God building His church in and through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? Why is God allowing His servants to be investing into the building up of this church? It is ultimately so that here on earth, beloved, the manifold wisdom of God, verse 10, might be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You want to know why there is a church? To glorify God. To exalt His Son. Paul viewed his ministry on earth all for the building up of the church of God and all for the grand purpose that God's majesty and his manifold wisdom, verse 10, might be made known through the church. We who are the church communicate. Listen, we communicate something about the glory and the majesty of God here on this earth. The church is the visible manifestation of something of the glory and the infinite wisdom of God, of His mercy and His love and His kindness and His justice as found in Jesus Christ. And we are here to to point to the glory of God, to show the world that He's calling sinners to repent and believe in His Son, Jesus Christ, and that there's this beautiful, majestic temple growing of all these people, who the redeemed, who will be with God and join Him forever and ever in the heavenly places. The church, beloved, is a lighthouse, if you want to think of it that way. A lighthouse that, that sheds light on who God is in His majesty and His glory. The church, is, as my wife put it the other day, is a beacon, a beacon which attracts people to Jesus Christ or should attract people to Jesus Christ as they see our testimony. The church is a flag, if you will, which, which heralds and trumps and represents God on earth so that people would, would see visibly the gospel at work powerfully in the lives of people. The church attracts people to Jesus Christ. It communicates something about the glory of God, namely, verse 10 of Ephesians 3, His manifold wisdom. 
that this God, almighty and all-powerful, could unfold this majestic plan and be faithful to fulfill his promises, you see. We are heralding that as a church. And the question that we might ask at this point is this. Primarily, how does the church communicate to a lost world the beauty and the glory of God? How do we do that? And the answer is the gospel. By the sharing and the teaching and the preaching of the gospel, the good news. You want to know what the greatest possession of the, of the church on earth is, beloved? It is the precious possession of the gospel. The message of Christ. The gospel is the good news, a message to be proclaimed to a lost world concerning a central person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is he? He is the God-man who came to earth, lived the perfect life that you and I could never live, died a sinner's death, though he was blameless and innocent himself, but rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, so that for all who repent and believe in Jesus Christ can be saved. What a beautiful message we have. And that belief in Jesus Christ and trusting in Jesus doesn't just refer to intellectual assent or knowing certain facts about Jesus, but a lifetime commitment that begins at the point of conversion, whereby we are committed to no longer living for ourselves, but living for the purposes of Jesus Christ. Oh, beloved, the gospel is our greatest, most prominent proclamation here on this earth. The church exists on earth and has been left on earth for a time to preach the gospel, to exalt Jesus on earth and tell of the wonders of God's manifold wisdom as found in Jesus Christ alone, you see. We're charged to preach this gospel, to preach of the hope of Christ. The the cry of of every believer and every church beloved should be this, Woe is us if we do not preach the gospel. Woe is us, and woe is this world, because if there is no gospel being preached, then people don't know about a hope that they can find in Jesus Christ alone, and they continue to live in deception, thinking that somehow, some way, what's on this earth will fulfill them. And it will not. It won't. Only Jesus saves. Only Jesus sets the captives free. Only Jesus grants salvation from sins. Only in Jesus is there forgiveness, beloved. That is the hope of the gospel that we're called to preach here on this earth. The hope of Christ. And so the first thing that we must do on this earth as a church is preaching the gospel message. And it is a message first and foremost. But listen, the gospel can become quite theoretical and mythological or mythical to to people that are watching us, unless they can see in a visible, tangible way, in real people, in human beings, the transforming power of the gospel. That there's something different about us. The kingdom of God truly does not consist in words, but in what? In power. And that is manifested in real lives, beloved, being transformed by the gospel. So a lost world must visibly, tangibly see that this gospel works in the lives of people who profess to know the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are different somehow, beloved, that those who are touched by the saving message of Christ are no longer the same anymore. 
That those who are touched by, by the saving message of Christ no longer rule themselves, no longer live for their purposes, no longer live for their pursuits, but they live for Jesus' pursuits and Jesus' goals. That we live for somebody greater than the mighty idol of self. The world around us must see that. That we have a new master, the Lord Jesus Christ. So you see, the saving message of the gospel, while a message to be proclaimed and believed, first and foremost, should be preached, but it is also authenticated, if you will, to some extent or another, in a real and tangible way, visibly seen in the lives of believers and in the life of the church. The world is watching, beloved. The world is watching. There are eyes in your homes if you have unbelievers in those homes watching your life. There are eyes in your neighborhood where there are unbelievers. There are eyes in your workplace if you are at work with unbelievers. There are eyes everywhere watching you to see if you truly are living life different. If this Jesus is truly able to to set you free from slavery to your sin. They're watching to see if indeed we practice what we say and what we preach. And boy, is this humbling, isn't it? This is so humbling for us because we all fall so short. Amen? As I've been studying through this book, I've been reminded again and again, oh, wow, how far I fall short, beloved, of the man that I need to be in Christ. And how much more every single day I need to be crying out for the grace of God that sustains me and that is able to empower me to be the man of God that I need to be by His grace. I hope that that is the cry of your heart as well, that you want to put the gospel on display before a lost world as well by the grace of God and the power of God. And so as you turn back to Titus chapter 1, the gospel on display it is this gospel on display through the church that is really the focus of, of Titus. And the message that, that Titus teaches us is this, that if we are to put the gospel on display as a church, then we as a church must be established. We must be established. We must be grounded. We must be stable. We must be strong. To be established doesn't mean that we're going to be the perfect church that there aren't going to be things that are going to happen. We know that we're going to be incomplete and imperfect, and we're not going to be a finished product here on this earth. And yet, we should understand that to be an established church is that we are moving cohesively in a direction where we are advancing the cause of the gospel and living out some of the exhortations of the book of Titus. So that the trajectory of our church is that we're moving into the future in a way that exalts Jesus Christ. And we're going to unpack that, what it means to be an established church according to Titus. This purpose that these churches on the island of Crete would be established is the, is the, is the, um, the purpose for which Paul left Titus on the island of Crete. We see this explicitly in verse 5. Notice what he says there. For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Paul had been in, in, in Crete at one point. It's implied by verse 5. We don't know how he got there, why he went there. Presumably because he wanted to advance the cause of the gospel, obviously. We don't know how long Paul stayed on the island of Crete. But we know that he wasn't there for very long. But he left in his stead 
this highly reliable and, and competent young partner in the gospel, Titus. Titus was not wet behind the ears. He was a disciple of Paul. He had interacted with Paul and watched Paul as he dealt extensively with the Corinthian church, which you and I know the Corinthian church had issues if any church had issues. Well, Titus was there and learned under Paul how to, uh, how to, how to deal with problems in the church. So Paul leaves this young man on the island of Crete, and the purpose, according to verse 5, is to establish this church, or the churches there on the island of Crete. And we see the twofold way in which this is going to work itself out. One, he is to appoint qualified, competent leaders in the church. And secondly, he is to set in order what remains. And we're going to see, via the contents of the book of Titus, what it is that is not in place as it should be. So that is why Paul, what Paul wants Titus to focus upon, to help establish these churches. And we, like I said, we see this unfolded in the contents, t- contents of the book of Titus. Look at chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Or there, rather, he's, he begins to talk about the, that at the top of the list of an established church is that qualified, competent leaders should be in place. And he talks in verses 6 through 9 of what these leaders, what their character should be like. And not only that, but that what they should be competent to do in verse 9. They should be able to hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Paul says at the top of the list, Titus, if these churches are to be established, you need godly, qualified, competent leaders in those churches. Why? Because according to verses 10 through 16 of verse chapter 1, there are false teachers now arising from within these churches. Not only is there opposition from the outside, but there there are false teachers arising from within. He calls them those of the circumcision, especially those of the circumcision in verse 10. Look at verse 11. These who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. And something that is characteristic of these false teachers, verse 16, is that they profess to know God with their lips. They give lip service to knowing God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Paul says, appoint qualified godly leaders who are competent to refute such individuals in the church who arise from within and come in from without. Chapter 2, verses 1 through uh, 10, then, given, uh, 10, give instructions to various groups or members in the church. He talks to older men and older women who are to train the younger women. And the older men are to train the younger men. He gives instructions to younger men in the church. And then to bond slaves in chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. All of these groups are to be taught sound doctrine, which basically means sound is healthy teaching. So that their minds are changed. So that their thoughts are altered. So that then there's conduct that is healthy conduct. Godly, holy conduct in the lives of these various individuals. Then in chapter 3 verses 1 through 8. He instructs them concerning the right response. Or the right way to live in a godly way before a wicked and perverse generation. Including a corrupt government. Which was the Roman Empire then. This is how you need to live in the light of being in Christ before uh, uh, the government and in society. In chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, he instructs concerning dealing with those who are factious in the church. Those who who are doctrinally deviant, first and foremost. But also those who are divisive in the church. 
I got a phone call from one of my, um, as a side note, from one of my uh, longtime friend of mine, pastor, who for the last four years has just been going through a lot. And he shared with me about a group of people within the church who are, have, for the last three or four years, have been expressing concerns. They never go to the elders. They never go to him. But they talk behind his back. And yet, they say they are not factious. That they're not divisive. And we were able to pray together and cry together and instruct him from the word of God as we've walked through a lot of stuff ourselves in the last few years, haven't we? Well, Paul says one, something that is so important in the church is to have leaders and churches that are stabilized and established so that you deal with factious people in the church. He says in chapter 3, verse 10, reject a factious man after your first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. So important, beloved to protect the purity and the sanctity of the church of God. And he instructs him concerning this as well. And then he talks to him about the importance of these churches, putting the gospel on display by means of their zeal for good works. Listen, if we learn something from the book of Titus, it is this, that churches who are established or have a good trajectory are known for meeting needs in the lives of one another, are known for being devoted to service, are known for having a, a, a group of highly committed participants who are zealous for good deeds. He, deeds or works in the book of Titus is a, is a significant uh, theme. And I want to say this first and foremost. Look at chapter 3 and verse 5. None of us are saved by our works. We are not justified, accepted before a holy God by the, on the basis of what we do. Paul tells us in chapter 3, verse 4, that when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, notice, He, God our Savior, saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his, what? By his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul thunderously over and over again, including in his book of Titus, makes the point that we are not justified by our works. There's no way that we could be good enough. There's no way that you can be humanitarian enough. Unless you are in Christ, you are not justified. You cannot achieve or earn your salvation by your own merit. Paul wants us to know that, that it's not by works of righteousness, but according to the mercy and the grace of God found only in Jesus Christ. As we trust and commit our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved. So it's not by works. And yet... Once we are saved and we are justified by the Lord, we are saved unto good works. We are saved that we might be people who are service-minded, who are doing good deeds for the glory of God, not for our own glory anymore. And he makes this point over and over again. I've already read back in chapter 1, verse 16, how the false teachers are known for professing God with their lips, but by their deeds, they deny him being detestable and disobedient for, and worthless for any good deed. Well, in contrast to that, God's people are to be known for good works. Look at chapter 2 and verse 6. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. 
In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. With purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. You know what Paul says? Paul says to Titus, Titus, you be an example along with the young men of good works so that you may silence the opponents. Let young men, rather than being, being known for being insensible and lack self-control, to be devoted for, to, to, to be sensible and devoted to good works so that the opponents would be silenced. Look at chapter 2 and verse 14. Speaking of Jesus from the context who gave himself for us, and notice, to redeem us from every lawless deed. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Read it with me. Zealous for good deeds. We often focus upon the fact that Jesus, in Jesus we can be forgiven, and that's true. In Jesus we can receive eternal life, and that is true. How often do you think about the fact that Jesus has come to redeem us from lawless deeds? And to purify for himself a people for his own possession. He owns you, believer. And he wants you to be zealous for good deeds, according to verse 14. That's what he wants you to be devoted to, to good deeds. Look at chapter 3 and verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. Chapter 3, verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God, here it is, those who have committed their lives to the Lord, will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Chapter 3, verse 14. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, so that they will not be unfruitful. Let me ask you, you think God wants his people, Christians who have been justified by faith alone? Do you you think he wants his people to be devoted to good works? Yes or no? Yes, for his glory, for the good of your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, why? Why should we be zealous for good works? Why should we, why should we want to, to live lives that are characterized by this kind of a thing? Why? Is it so that people can look at us and, and we can, or we could look down our noses upon other people who are not like us in society and say, oh, look at us. God didn't have to go very far to save us. He's going to have to go to the infinite degree to save you, wretched sinner. So that we could boast in ourselves about how great we are. Listen, the only difference between us and people who are unsaved is this. We are sinners just like them, saved by grace. That last phrase is what makes you different. You're saved by grace, and even that is a gift. You did nothing to earn God's salvation. You're no better than they are. No better, beloved. So why do we do this? Why are we to be living conduct uh, that, that, is, that, is, uh, that is instructed here in the book of Titus? It is ultimately for the glory of God, right? To make the gospel visible. There's a greater purpose here. There's a greater goal in mind. And that is to bring glory or to to ascribe glory through our conduct to the God of the universe, the majestic God of the universe, and to make his gospel visible and to exalt his son. That is the greater purpose. Look at chapter 2 and verse 5. 
Even in the midst of instructing on conduct, Paul keeps putting in these purpose statements. Why are you to do this? Chapter 2, verse 5, middle of the verse, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. And in context, he's talking about older women are to live in a certain way and they are to instruct and encourage younger women to a particular lifestyle. Why? So that the word of God will not be dishonored. Why are older women to be investing themselves into younger women and to be characterized by a particular character so that we can have an elitist group of women in the church who are discipled and some who are not? No, it's so that the word of God will not be dishonored as women are all that God has called them to be. Look at chapter 2 and verse 8. Paul is instructing young men to be sensible. Verse 8, to be sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. Here it is again. So that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. What opponent? Opponents of the gospel. Those who are in opposition to the, to the plan of God in Crete. False teachers who are arising from within, who, have a, who are known for corrupt behavior and conduct. As they see sensible men, they will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about the church. Look at chapter 2 and verse 9. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Here it is. So that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Beautiful picture of that word adorn, right, in our English text. Why do you adorn a Christmas tree? You want it to look nice. You want to attract attention to it, right? Or the items on the tree with the lights and all of that. That's why we adorn something. When we walk in obedience, beloved, and we walk according to this kind of holy conduct as a church, and we're committed to life-on-life discipleship in this way, we adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. That is the purpose, the glory of God, his gospel being displayed through the church. This is why Paul has instructed Titus to help establish these churches and to exhort in sound doctrine and to teach sound doctrine that they may live out that sound doctrine in their lives and so bring glory to God and put the gospel on display. Don't lose sight of that great purpose there. Now, this is not going to be easy for Titus. Or it was not. It was a difficult task. Crete was a very strategic place. And yet at the same time, it was a very, very corrupt place. It was an important island in the Mediterranean Sea. The, the western tip of the island would be directly south of Athens, uh, and Gre- uh, Athens, Greece. This means that it, had, it was influenced even by, that, by Greece itself. The island was approximately 150 miles long, 30 miles wide. It had a long history, tumultuous history, corrupt history. In the first century BC, there was constantly, constant rivalry and fighting and battles between cities on the island, fighting for control. It's a tumultuous place. Eventually, in 67 BC, the island was taken over by Rome. It became a Roman province, which meant that it was under the control of the Roman Empire. So, a very interesting place with a lot of history. As far as the cultural makeup of the island, it was very diverse. It was a mixed population of people. During the time of Jesus and the apostles, it would have been made up of a number of of people, 
groups of people. Uh, there were a lot of Romans there, retired Roman uh, officials. There were also many Roman citizens there looking for a cheaper way of life, if you will. There were also natives of the island who went way back as far as their uh, ancestors, hundreds of years. Some believe, some commentators have uh, believed that these natives were originally the Philistines of the Old Testament. We don't know. That's just a theory. Whatever the case, it was very much a melting pot of people there with many different natives, with many different backgrounds. There were also many Jewish merchants who lived there as well. It was a melting pot of different cultures. And I ask you, does that sound familiar? Here in Southern California, right? One brother um, sent me these stats that there are 4 million people in the Los Angeles city itself, more than 4 million people currently. But in the greater Los Angeles area, there, there are some 10 plus million people, um, 140 nationalities, over 210, I think it is, over 210 languages spoken in the greater Los Angeles area. I mean, we have a very culturally diverse um, uh, geographical location, right? Some people have, have asked me when they found out, friends of mine, um, uh, you know, is, is Calvary a culturally diverse church? And I always wonder, you know, interesting questions, you know. Um, and we, one guy even said, it's part of the reason why the elders put you forward at Calvary Bible Church as the main guy, because you're Hispanic and that would help the congregation become culturally diverse. I said, I don't know, man, you just ask them. OK, I'm sure somewhere on the list there, that might have been one of the reasons. OK, I hope not the main reason. I know it wasn't. It's always an interesting question. But the reason why they're asking that is because of the area that we live in. For me, here's the issue. The issue is not that we're trying to push for a culturally diverse congregation. The issue is this. Are we a reflection of our community? A reflection of our surrounding community? Because if we're not, then that means that we're not really reaching our community for Christ. And I'm so thankful for the diversity that I see here at Calvary Bible Church. I think we're growing in our diversity so that we might become a reflection of our community, beloved. And a beautiful picture of heaven, right? A beautiful picture of heaven on earth. Now, how did the gospel arrive to Crete? We really don't know. You could only speculate about that. What we do know, if you remember, that in Acts chapter 2, when all kinds of people were coming into Jerusalem, some 2 million plus people all gathered in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2 from different nations and backgrounds and tongues and all of that in languages. The Cretans were amongst those people in Acts chapter 2 and verse 11. When the Spirit arrived, even some of the Cretans were speaking in their own tongues and their own languages of the mighty deeds of God in a way that they could be understood in their own language, or rather in other languages. They were there. And then they got to hear Peter's sermon right after that, preaching at Pentecost. And they got to hear the gospel. It is very likely that some of those people got saved and went back to Crete. But it's also very possible that there were already Old Testament believers, if you will, who were already in Crete. So whatever the case, the gospel arrived in Crete. And there were churches that were already birthed in the various cities of Crete. And these churches were diverse. Both Gentiles and Jewish converts were in these particular churches in the various cities. And I'll tell you what, from the contents of the book, it doesn't sound like ministry was a cakewalk for Titus at all, right? 
It was not easy at all. There were many challenges. And the biggest challenge, challenge was the corrupt government that existed on the island of Crete. The island of Crete was known for its wickedness. There were particular uh, famous sayings in those days or slogans which highlighted the corruption in Crete. For example, to Cretize, after the island of Crete, to Cretize meant to lie or to deceive. No, think about that. Not a very encouraging thing, right? To, if you're a Cretan, oh, do you Cretize, right? You're a liar, you're a deceiver. The Cretan culture was known for rampant lying and deception. There was another popular slogan or saying that went like this, to play the Cretan with a Cretan. If you play the Cretan with a Cretan, it means to out-trick a trickster. In other words, what were they known for? For lying, tricky, being swindlers, being thieves. They lacked integrity in their dealings with one another. Paul even quotes one of their, their scholars or prophets in chapter 1, verse 12. He says, one of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That's one of their prophets. Not very encouraging, right? This testimony is true, verse 13. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. Can you imagine some Cretan guy arguing with Titus about, no, our culture really isn't that bad, dude. Really? Let me quote prophet such and such. You guys are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That's what one of your prophets says. This testimony is true, says the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So they were known for laziness, lying, deception, rampant immorality, drunkenness, murder, and greed. How familiar does that sound to you? It's almost as if things have not changed, right? The timeless principles, beloved. You know what the difference between our culture and their culture perhaps might be, if any? It's that at least there, they recognized their, their, their wickedness, and they trumped their wickedness, and they were proud of their wickedness. In our culture today, what do we do? We hide it. We dismiss it. Our culture, to our culture, nothing is sinful or wicked in the eyes of our society anymore. Everything is neutral. Everything is gray. We call evil good and good evil. And anybody who draws a line on the sand and says, this is evil and this is good, you are narrow-minded, you're arrogant. How dare you, Christians, say that there's a standard of objective truth? How dare you? Good is whatever I determine it to be. What is right is whatever is right for me, and that might not be right for you. See, the difference with our culture and that culture, if anything, is that we've blurred the lines between what is good and evil. We blurred those lines. Everything is gray. But Crete was a wicked society, full of sinful people. They knew it, and they were proud of it. And yet, beloved, listen, you know what I find most beautiful about this letter? is that God had a heart for these people. That even though the Cretan society was wicked and corrupt and sinful, and we're going to expand upon that as we look at the contents of this letter, even so, even though they were so unlovely, God had a heart for these people. And in His providence, God allowed people on the island of Crete to be saved and to be, and to be a light on the, in that context. And then God sent Paul there for a period of time who brought the gospel and brought the word of God there. And then Titus is now representing the apostle there on the island of Crete. And there's another light shining servant of the Lord there on the island of Crete. And then there are other believers who are there 
who are trying to, to, to bring the gospel to bear upon other people, trying to reach these people and establish churches. Oh, beloved, listen, God is not partial or, or prejudiced towards any of his creatures. The gospel is preached to everyone that they might believe in Jesus Christ and be saved from a wicked and perverse generation. And we must be the same. We must be like Jesus who who came to seek and to save the lost. We must be like Jesus who came to call sinners to repentance. We must not be partial people for God is not partial. Neither should we be. We should love sinners and have compassion for people, beloved. I love what a friend of mine just recently said. I was talking to him, a fellow pastor of 30-something years, and he was describing his, the context where his church is, and he was telling me a little bit about the church context. I mean, it is a corrupt city where they're at. Gang-infested, drug trafficking, racial tensions between blacks and whites and Hispanics there, rampant violence all over the place. And I was expecting him to tell me, to tell me, oh, woe is me, brother. I wish we weren't here. You know what he said to me after that description? He said, Kempis, I am so glad that our church is here. I'm so glad we're here. Because that tells me that God wants us to reach these people. That's the hard attitude. That's the hard attitude, beloved. How about us? How about us? How often do we cower away in fear? Because of the people in our surrounding community, afraid for our lives, afraid for the, for that we're the epicenter of the entertainment industry. And we're here, Calvary Bible Church, in, in the middle of this environment here, the epicenter of the entertainment industry. Oh, poor us. Deliver us, God, from this context. No. God is saying, reach those people, love those people, tell them about Jesus who saves. Tell them about my son. Do you think that this is an accident? It's not an accident, beloved. How often do you and I look at the society around us and instead of sneering down or looking down our noses at people, we're moved with compassion for like, like Jesus for these people because they are like, like sheep having no shepherd. How often do we look at people different than us culturally or otherwise or backgrounds and remember that we are all part of one human race and the problem of sin extends to every single individual regardless of ethnic background beloved or upbringing we are all sinners who are in need of a savior you see if titus teaches us anything then it is that god has a huge heart for sinners of all cultures and backgrounds. And he wants his gospel preached to the ends of the earth. Our sin is something we all have in common. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, beloved. We are no better than anybody else around us. And God calls us to have compassion for people after his own heart. That was the heart of Paul. That was the heart of Titus. That should be our heart. You don't have to turn there, but let me read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 6 to perhaps remind us concerning the need to be humble as we look at the society around us and all the destructive sins that we see. Chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, those who have sex outside of marriage, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, and that's effeminate by perversion, 
nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And we say, preach it, Paul. Preach it, brother. Woo! A lot of those sins are right here in my society. Preach it, brother. Those who practice such things, including homosexuality and transgender, if they don't repent from that sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Preach it, brother. Don't stop reading. Such were some of you. Such were some of you. What did God do? You were washed. You were sanctified. Set apart from those destructive sins. You were justified, declared righteous in the eyes of God, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and in the spirit of our God. Such were some of us. Such were some of us. He's not saying that we all practice all of those sins, but that we were all, were all by nature sinners, separated from God, apart from Jesus Christ. Our hearts should be to reach people, beloved. And listen, if you are here this morning and you have not committed your life to Jesus Christ, I want you to know that none of us in here who are believers are better than you are. I want you to know that right now. If there is a chief of sinners in this auditorium, it would be me. No Christian in here is better than you, unbeliever, who have not committed your, your, your life to Jesus Christ. We are sinners just like you. The difference between me and you or you and other and Christians who are in here is that people who are believers, who are Christians, are sinners saved by grace. People who have embraced a gift offered to us, not by works of righteousness, not by any human merit, but found only in Jesus Christ, and we've trusted in Jesus Christ and committed our lives to Jesus Christ, no longer having mastery over our lives, but now He's master over us. Grace. Grace. The grace of Christ, His life, His death, His resurrection for you, sinner if you would turn from your sins and put your faith in Him and commit your life to Him. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If you confess Him as Lord, you will be saved. So we must have a heart for the lost, beloved. As God does, and Paul had, and Titus had on the island of Crete, a very tough place. Now listen, part of the point that Paul makes here to Titus is the way that we reach a sinful people that we love, is not by becoming like the world. Hear me. We do not reach a sinful and cursed generation by becoming like the world. I knew a church like that a few years ago who started having small groups where they started serving booze and drinking parties and then offering the unbelievers who would come in because they like to, they like, they've set up a bar for these people. And they started drinking it up with them. They would offer them any movie that they wanted to watch. It doesn't matter what. There was no standard. All in the name of wanting to reach them for Christ. Really? No power in that. The churches should not become like the world in order to win the world, beloved. In fact, that is not love, but spiritual adultery against our Heavenly Father. Spiritual adultery. James 4.4 is a serious warning against those who love the world, who make friends with the world, and yet profess to know the Lord. You adulteresses, he says in James 4.4. 4. 
You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? And by friendship with the world, he means devotion and affection with the world. Not, um, not don't interact with the world, don't, don't seek to engage the world. Leave the world and go to, go to planet Mars if you can get there. He's saying, don't be friends with the world. Don't be affectionately devoted with the world so that you adopt the world's thinking, the world's standards, the world's pursuits. That's what he means. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, he says, makes himself an enemy of God. There's a line drawn on the sand. Pick your side. You're going to love the world and be for the world, or you're going to be for God and for his purposes, including reaching the world with the gospel. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And he makes the point that the world is passing away. It's temporal. But those who do the will of the Lord abide forever. Beloved, we do not become like the world in order to reach the world. It's part of what Paul's message to Titus is in this book and to us. And so the question is, how do we reach the world then? How do we do that? Well, we preach the gospel And then Paul instructs Titus that he preaches sound doctrine so that he he would establish those churches with, with godly, qualified leaders and set in order what remains. He tells him, preach sound doctrine, Titus, and put leaders in place that will preach sound doctrine that will lead to sound living. Preach healthy teaching that will lead to conduct that is different than the Cretan society around them. Conduct that adorns the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Conduct that puts the glory and the beauty of the pure gospel on display before a lost world. Tell them to be godly, Titus. And godliness is not for the purpose of bringing attention to ourselves, to exalt ourselves, look how good we are, but for God's glory and as a platform for displaying the gospel, beloved. That is what Paul says to Titus about reaching the world for Christ. Preach the message and tell them to live lives worthy of the gospel. Establish those churches accordingly, Titus. In sum, what does Titus teach us? That the way to impact a society around us is not to become like the world, but to be established in the gospel and live conduct worthy of the gospel. And in so doing, Calvary Bible Church, if we apply these truths to our hearts and lives, beloved, We will be a church that puts the gospel on display and shows the power of the gospel in both word and deed. Amen? That was all introduction. And next week we're going to get into verses 1 through 4. All right, let me pray for us. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you, Lord, that in your infinite plan, sovereign plan, in the administration of your plan and your manifold wisdom you have allowed us to be a part of what you are doing here on this earth as individuals but most importantly collectively as one body one church oh lord as we look at the contents of this book and we are lord challenged help us to look to apply your word to our hearts and lives father help us to not be hearers who are self-deceived but doers lord of your word who glorify you who put the gospel on display, Lord, as individuals, as families, and as a church, so that a lost world would look to the hope of Jesus Christ and be saved from a wicked and perverse generation 
that they would have peace, that they would have joy, that they would have eternal life found only in him. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.